Volume Two, Chapter Eight of Willard's Weird by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter Eight: Widowed and Free. Mister and Missus Willard made their way slowly back to Penmorval. It was a melancholy journey for those two who had travelled so gaily in days gone by. The young wife, so full of hope so proud of her husband who was her senior and superior versed in the knowledge of that wide outer world of which the cornish heiress knew so little she had loved him with a reverent admiring love looking up to him honouring him and deferring to him in all things pleased to be dependent upon him and now he was the dependent looking to her for help and comfort he bore his calamity with an almost awful calmness which at times was more painful to the tender sympathetic wife than fretfulness and complaining would have been the dull agony of neuralgic pain wrung no groan from him he endured the anguish of racked nerves and aching limbs with stoical composure it is not a surprise to me dora he said quietly when his wife praised his patience i have expected some such attack there have been sensations strange feelings at odd times which although slight enough have not been without their meaning life was very smooth for me here at penmorval very different from my life in the past the struggles of my boyhood the hard work and hard thinking of my manhood your love made existence full of sweetness i had the world's esteem too which must always count for something let a man pretend to despise the world as he may yes it was a full and perfect life and i told myself that i had come off a winner in the lottery of fate and now all things are changed there was this last lot waiting for me at the bottom of the urn my dearest murmured his wife nestling closer to him among the heaped-up pillows of his sofa it would be too hard too cruel that you should be thus smitten if this life were all but praised be god it is not all there is a bright eternity waiting for us a long day of rest in the land where there is neither sorrow nor pain her husband answered with an impatient sigh my dear dora i have neither your sweet simplicity nor your pious faith in the letter of an old book he answered this life is so palpable and so painful just now that I cannot comfort myself by looking beyond it towards a life of which I know nothing. They were at Penmorval. Mrs. Willard had established her husband in her own particular sanctum, which was the prettiest room in the house. A spacious, airy room on the first floor, with a large Tudor window facing southward, and an oriel in the southwestern angle julian willard had decorated and furnished this room for his young wife and all things it contained had been chosen with reference to her tastes and pursuits it opened into her dressing-room and beyond the dressing-room there was the chief bedchamber of penmorval the chamber of the lord of the manor from time immemorial the birth-chamber and the death-chamber its very spaciousness and grandeur gave to this state apartment an air of gloom a gloom intensified by the prevailing tints of the tapestry 
a series of hunting scenes executed in a sombre gradation of bluish greens and grayish browns the elaborately carved oak wardrobes were like monuments in a gothic cathedral the bed with its embroidered velvet hangings fluted columns and plumed ornaments suggested a royal catafalque while the fireplace with its sculptured pillars and heavy decoration in black and white marble recalled the entrance to the capulet's tomb not a room assuredly for the occupation of an invalid not a room in which to suffer sleepless nights and long hours of dull wearing pain this was what dora thought and at her order her dressing-room which was airy and sufficiently spacious was transformed into a bedroom for mr willard while her morning-room was arranged for his daily occupation it would be easy to wheel his sofa from one room to the other all her orders had been telegraphed beforehand and everything was in its place when the sufferer arrived it is a special privilege to be nursed by a good fairy he said smiling up at his wife with that rare smile which had so peculiar a charm in her eyes the smile of a man who has not the same set graciousness for all comers after this there came the dull monotony of suffering the life of routine the death in life from which all possibility of action is gone all power of choice all changes and chances of the outer world cut off for ever a life in which a man feels that he has suddenly dropped back into infancy and is as helpless as a child upon his mother's knee the child has all the unexplored future before him the infinitive potentialities of life the man turns his sad eyes backward and reviews the past all the things he has done and the things he has left undone pass in a shadowy procession before his mind's eye he sees how much wiser he might have been the faults and follies of those departed years are unrolled before him as on a magic scroll his maturer judgment his colder blood condemn the sins of his passionate youth dora was her husband's companion through many an hour of gloom and depression there were times when he would talk to her with a kind of feverish animation talk of the books he had read or of the men he had known recall the memories of his youth his boyhood even i can only live in the past he said and in your love you are my present and my future dora were it not for you and your love i should have anticipated annihilation the grave could hardly reduce me to more complete nothingness than this death in life here he looked round the room with an impatient sigh and then touched by the pathetic look in his wife's face he added were it not for you dora i have infinite riches while i possess your love if i were to lose that now you know that you can never lose it my love is a part of my life yes but there might come a crushing blow that would kill it or if i were to sink into feebleness and imbecility if the mind were to decay like the body the only difference would be to make me love you more fondly knowing that you stood in greater need of my love answered his wife quietly yes i believe you are noble enough for the extremity of self-sacrifice he said gazing at her with a searching look a look of the deepest love and keenest pain a look that told of anguish surpassing the common woes of humanity 
yes i believe it is within the compass of a woman's nature to love a human wreck like me or even to love a creature stained with blackest sin there is no limit to the sublimity of a woman's love his wife was kneeling by his couch her head leaning against his pillow there were times when she could find no words of comfort when she could only comfort him with the light touch of her lips upon his brow her sympathy her presence her hand laid gently upon his i love to hear you talk of your youth she said one day when he had been talking of his boyhood at marlborough and at home the dull old parsonage the house mother always busy and often scolding troubled about many things the father chewing the cud of somebody else's sermon in a shabby little den of a study reeking of tobacco a sermon to be dribbled out slowly next sunday morning in a style of elocution or non-elocution happily almost extinct tell me about your life in paris she went on encouraging him to forget his present pains in those old memories that must have been full of interest it was a life of grinding toil and gnawing anxiety he answered impatiently there is not a detail that could interest you everything in your past history interests me julian i know how hard you worked in paris i saw your desk the place where you sat night after night the lamp that lighted you mr blumenlein has altered nothing in your rooms vastly civil of him muttered willard as if revolting against patronage from a dealer in fancy goods but however hard you worked you must have had some associations with the outer world pursued dora you must have felt the fever and the excitement of that time you must have been interested in the men who governed france i was interested in the stocks that went up and down and in the men who governed france so far as their conduct influenced the bourse a man who was running a race neck or nothing a race that means life or death has no time to think of anything outside the course the external world has no existence for him and you knew nothing of the master spirits of the empire the men of science the writers the painters my child how innocent you are the men who write books and paint pictures have no more direct influence upon an epoch than the tailors who build coats and the milliners who make gowns the master spirits are the politicians and financiers those are the rulers of their age all the rest are servants bothwell had shown himself deeply moved by the affliction that had fallen on his cousin's husband every feeling of ill-will vanished in a breath before the face of that supreme misfortune a life smitten to the dust bothwell was too generous-hearted to remember that the master of penmorval had not been altogether kind in the past his only thought was how he could help were it by ever so little to lighten julian willard's burden he was all the more sympathetic when he found that the sufferer had thought of him and of his interests even in the hour of calamity while the blow that crushed him was still a new thing it was more than good of you to consider my happiness at such a time said bothwell when dora had told him of her husband's conversation with heathcote my dear bothwell my wife's interests are my own and i knew that she was keenly interested in your happiness heathcote has not found out very much about the girl who was killed but he has found out just enough to dispel his suspicions about you 
and he withdraws all opposition to your marriage with hilda now it is my earnest desire to see you happily married before i am called away and as life is always uncertain trebly uncertain for a man in my condition the sooner you are married the better i shall not plead for delay said bothwell if i can win hilda's consent to an early marriage but i hope my dear willard that you may live to see our children growing up that is to hope for the indefinite prolongation of an incurable disease and is hardly a kind wish on your part all you have to do is to hurry on this marriage unfortunately the house i have pitched upon will want three or four months work before it can be habitable what does that matter you can live at penmorval till your house is ready there is room for half a dozen families in this rambling old place there will be no one here to interfere with your privacy you may be almost as much alone as in your own home and hilda's presence in the house will help to cheer my poor wife hurry on your marriage bothwell while heathcote is in the humour to accept you don't be hindered by any absurd consideration about houses secure your good fortune while you can he spoke with an almost feverish impatience the fretfulness of a sick man who cannot bear the slightest opposition to his will my dear julian you may be sure that bothwell will be only too glad to act on your advice said his wife soothingly let him do so then and don't let him talk about houses retorted willard bothwell was to meet his betrothed next day at trevena where she was to go with fräulein meyerstein to inspect the old-fashioned cottage which her lover wanted to turn into a commodious house there could not be a better opportunity for pleading his cause he rode across country and arrived in time to receive hilda and her chaperone who had posted from launston to trevena it was a delicious autumn day and after the cottage had been inspected and approved the lovers wandered about the wild crests of Tintagel, utterly happy in each other's company while that discreet spinster miss meyerstein sat on a grassy bank in the valley below absorbed in a strip of honeycomb knitting intended to form part and parcel of a counterpane which great work had been in progress for the past ten years bothwell was the bearer of a letter from dora entreating hilda to go to her at the manor and stay there until heathcote's return bothwell was to stay at trevena meanwhile and set the builders at work upon his improvements the old cottage and the land about it had been secured on a lease for three lives bothwell being one hilda another and one of the twins the third bothwell hoped to be able to buy the place long before any of these lives gave out you and i have so much to arrange and talk about wrote mrs willard your furniture your linen your trousseau i venture to think i am your nearest friend and the person you would be most likely to consult in these matters your presence will comfort me dear and hinder me from dwelling too exclusively on my great trouble julian too will be glad to have you in the house and to hear your songs sometimes of an evening he has his good days and his bad days and there are times when he is cheerful and likes company do come to me at once hilda i am sure you must be tired of dawlish by this time it is a very nice little place but i can imagine a limit to its attractions and the season is rather late for your favorite diversion of swimming you shall be free to return to the spaniards when your brother comes back to england but in the meantime i am sure i want you more 
the Miss Meyerstein, who has those all-absorbing twins to occupy her cares and thoughts. I shall expect you the day after tomorrow by the afternoon train. I shall send a carriage to meet you. Yours lovingly, Dora Willard. What could Hilda say to such an invitation from one who had been to her as an elder sister, and whom she loved as fondly as ever sister was loved? She wrote to Dora at the hotel where they lunched, and took tea, and gave her letter to Bothwell. "'You are going to Penmorval,' he said. "'Yes, I am going there the day after tomorrow. "'And I am to be banished. "'I am to live here and see that my plans are carried out properly. "'I dare say my cousin thinks that if I were to stay at Penmorval while you are there, "'I should forget all the serious business of life, "'lapse into a rapturous idiocy of love.' well i am too happy to complain i shall be happy in the thought that i am building our nest i shall watch every brick that is laid every timber that is sawn you shall not have a badly baked brick or a plank of green wood in your house i shall think of the plans night and day dream of them leap out of my sleep in the dead of night to make some improvement if you chop and change too much you will have dear to pay said miss meyerstein and then she launched into a long story about a german grand duke with an unpronounceable name who built himself a summer palace which cost three times as much as he intended because of his serene highness's artistic temperament which had beguiled him into continual tampering with the plans never in his life had bothwell felt happier than on that breezy september day pottering about the old cottage on the hillside planning the house and gardens of the future the study the drawing-room the ingle-nook in the dining-room the little entrance hall which would hardly be more than a lobby the closets and clever contrivances and shelves and cosy nooks which were to make this house different from all other houses at least in the eye of its possessor the quaint old lattices which were to be retained in all their primitive simplicity and still quainter casements which were to be added here an oriel and there a bow an early english chimney stack on one side and a distinctly flemish weathercock on the other bothwell could draw well enough to show the builder what he wanted done he had his pocket-book full of sketches for chimneys pediments doors and windows and ornamental ventilators one would think you were going to build a town said the practical fräulein never had bothwell been happier than as he rode across the moors in the fading daylight thinking of the day that was over what a simple domestic day it had been so homely so tranquil so sweet ending with the cosy tea drinking in the parlour at the inn hilda presiding at the tea-tray and as self-possessed as if she and bothwell had been married for ten years the time of tremors and agitations was past they were secure in each other's love secure in the consent and approval of those who loved them henceforward their lives were to sail calmly on a summer sea how different was the newer and purer love of his from the old passion with its alternations of fever and remorse how different his simple-minded sweetheart of today gentle unselfish conscientious religious from the woman who had been all exaction and caprice insatiable in her desire for admiration self-indulgent luxurious caring not a jot how the world outside her own boudoir went on who suffered or who was glad 
provided her wishes were gratified and her vanity fed it was dinner time when bothwell arrived at penmorval and the dinner hour was of all seasons the most melancholy now that the master of the house was a helpless invalid on the upper floor perhaps never again to enter that stately dining-hall where the butler insisted upon serving bothwell's dinner in just as slow and ceremonial a manner as if family and guests had been assembled in full force vainly did bothwell plead against this ceremony i wish you would ask them to cook me a chop stodden he said a chop and a potato would be ample i hate a long dinner at any time but most especially when i am to eat it alone you need not take so much trouble as you do about me but stodden ascribed all such speeches to overweening modesty on mr graham's part the poor young man knew that he was in some wise an interloper and he did not wish to give trouble it was a very proper feeling on his part and stodden was resolved that he should not be a loser by his modesty stodden gave him an even handsomer dinner on the following day and when remonstrated with smiled the smile of incredulity law sir you know you like a good dinner he said you mayn't wish to give trouble but you must like a good dinner we all like a good dinner it's human nature after this bothwell felt that remonstrance was useless mrs willard dined with her invalid husband she rarely left him except when he was sleeping under the influence of morphia or when he asked to be alone there were hours in his long and weary day in which even his wife's presence seemed a burden to him and when he preferred to fight his battle in solitude on this particular evening of bothwell's return from trevena his cousin joined him at the dinner-table an unexpected pleasure i want to hear all your news bothwell she said julian is asleep and i have half an hour free bothwell told his news gladly gaily she is coming the day after tomorrow he said and i am to be banished like romeo but i am not afraid of romeo's ill luck you won't give my juliet a sleeping potion and bury her alive while i'm away will you i have taken two rooms in a cottage at trevena with an old goody who is to do for me that will be ever so much cheaper than the inn and you know that in my position i ought to be economical you ought not to make yourself uncomfortable for the sake of a few pounds ah that is your spendthrift's argument he can never understand that he ought to save a few pounds and so he dies a pauper while the man who has a proper respect for pounds and pence even blossoms into a millionaire i shall be very comfortable with my goody i shall be out all day superintending the builder i shall live upon chops and porter and i shall sleep like a top every night in a dear little bedroom smelling of lavender my goody is clean to a fault she cast an evil eye at my boots as i went upstairs all the articles of furniture in her rooms are veiled with crochet work as if the wood were too precious to be exposed to the light but how grave you are looking dora has willard been any worse to-day no he has been much the same a sad monotony of suffering it was of you i was thinking bothwell i saw some news in the county paper which i know will grieve you there has been no accident between launston and dawlish has there gasped bothwell starting up from his chair the train got back all right you foolish boy if there had been an accident how do you suppose i could hear of it exclaimed his cousin smiling at his vehemence 
how like a lover to imagine that any ill news must needs be about your betrothed though you only left her three hours ago no bothwell my bad news concerns an old friend of yours general harborough what of general harborough asked bothwell anxiously the announcement of his death is in the county paper his death impossible why i met him less than ten days ago he seemed hale and hearty as ever he caught a severe cold at the funeral of a friend and died of bronchitis after a very short illness poor bothwell i can sympathize with your sorrow for so staunch a friend i have often heard you say how good he was to you in india dora had heard of general harborough only as an indian friend of her cousins she knew of lady valeria's existence and that was all no rumor of bothwell's flirtation with that lady had ever reached her ears she did not know that bothwell's frequent journeys to plymouth had been on lady valeria's account that his mysterious journeys to london had been made in her interests troublesome journeys to interview due money-lenders to renew bills and tide over difficulties and now valeria was a widow and would have been able to exact the fulfilment of old vows breathed under tropical stars far away in that eastern land which they both loved she would have been able to claim him as her slave if he had not boldly broken his fetters in that last interview at fox hill thank god i delayed no longer he said to himself thank god i got my release before this happened and then he thought sadly affectionately of his old friend and he remembered with thankfulness that last meeting that farewell grasp of the good man's hand which he had been able to return as honestly as it was given why did i ever sin against him he asked himself what an arrant sneak i must have been you will go to general harborough's funeral i suppose said dora presently yes of course i must be at the funeral when does it take place tomorrow yes i shall go without doubt i shall join the procession at the cemetery as i am not invited there will be no need for me to go to the house i suppose not the poor widow will feel the blow terribly no doubt yes i have no doubt she will be sorry this was not a lie bothwell thought that even valeria could not fail to feel some touch of sorrow for the loss of that chivalrous friend and benefactor the man who had given so much and had received so poor a return for his gifts there would be the anguish of a guilty conscience even if there were no other form of sorrow but as i suppose she is elderly too perhaps she will not survive him very long pursued dora infinitely compassionate for the woes of a broken-hearted widow lady valeria elderly exclaimed bothwell she is not thirty what was your good general harborough so foolish as to marry a girl yes it was the only foolishness of his life that i have ever heard of and he was so kind to the woman he married that he might be pardoned for his folly i hope she was fond of him and worthy of him bothwell did not enter upon the question and his reticence about lady valeria harborough struck dora as altogether at variance with his natural frankness and then she remembered that unexplained entanglement which he had confessed to her an entanglement with a married woman and it flashed upon her that lady valeria might be the heroine of that story he had spoken of general harborough but never of general harborough's wife there had been a studied reserve upon that subject 
and now dora discovered that valeria harborough was a young woman the invitation to the funeral came by next morning's post a formal invitation sent by a fashionable firm of undertakers and bothwell had no excuse for staying away from fox hill where the mourners were to assemble at three o'clock in the afternoon he had no fear that lady valeria would be present upon such an occasion but there was just the possibility that she might send for him when she knew he was in the house she had always been reckless of conventionalities carrying matters with such a high hand as to defy slander his heart sank within him as he approached the classic portico of the villa deepest regret for his dead benefactor deepest remorse for having wronged him weighed down his heart as he entered the darkened house where rooms built for brightness and gaiety looked all the more gloomy in the day of mourning the hall was hung with black and in the midst stood the plain oak coffin draped with the colours which the general had fought for forty years before among the wild hills of afghanistan crosses and wreaths of purest white were heaped upon the coffin and the atmosphere of the darkened hall was heavy with the perfume of stephanotis and tuberose those two flowers which the general had always associated with his wife who rarely decorated herself or her rooms with any other exotics bothwell stood amidst the mourning crowd with heavily beating heart there was no summons from lady valeria and he heard someone near him telling someone else that her grief was terrible a stony silent grief which alarmed her people and her medical attendant she would see no one lady Calaverock had come all the way from baden where the poor dear earl was doctoring his gout but lady valeria had only consented to see her mother for half an hour and poor lady Calaverock had not even been asked to stay at fox hill she had been obliged to put up at an hotel which was a cruelty as everyone knew that the Calaverocks were as poor as church mice perhaps lady valeria has not forgiven her family for having sold her said the second speaker in the same confidential voice sold her nothing of the kind she adored the old general you had better tell that to another branch of the service muttered his friend as bothwell moved away from the group it was past five before the funeral was over and there was no train for bodmin till seven so bothwell strolled into the coffee-room of the duke of cornwall and ordered a cup of tea while he was drinking it he was joined by a young officer who had been at the funeral and whom bothwell had often met at fox hill quite a youth beardless and infantine of aspect but with a keen desire to appear older than his years he affected to have steeped himself in iniquity to have dishonoured more husbands and fleeced more tradesmen than any man in the service he hinted that his father had turned him out of doors and that his mother had died of a broken heart on his account he was a youth who loved gossip and who went about among all the wives and spinsters of plymouth the dowagers and old ladies disseminating tittle-tattle hardly anything he said was true hardly anybody believed him but people liked to hear him talk all the same there was a piquancy in slander uttered by those coral lips which had not long finished with the corals of babyhood my dear bothwell what a tragedy he exclaimed as he seated himself in front of a brandy and soda it is a sad loss for everyone bothwell answered tritely 
sad loss but my dear fellow what a scandal everybody in plymouth is talking about it there has been hardly anything else spoken of at any of the dinners i have been at during the last ten days i thought old maid tea parties were your usual form retorted bothwell with a sneer what is your last mare's nest falconer the general's death or the general's funeral the circumstances that preceded the dear old man's death that's the scandal surely you must have heard consider that i have been buried among the cornish moors and have heard nothing by jove do you mean to say that you don't know there was a dreadful row one night at fox hill sir george barney insulted lady valeria called her some foul name accused her of carrying on with a young man the general came up at the moment and smashed his head sir george went all over the place next day abusing my lady sending the general a summons to the police court where the whole story must have come out in extenso as those newspaper fellows say a very ugly story it is betting transactions borrowed money and a lover in the background an uncommonly queer story my dear graham plymouth was on the qui vive for a tremendous scandal you know what these garrison and dockyard towns like and a man in the general's position is a mark for slander the thing was altogether too awful and the poor old general wouldn't face it he wouldn't face it old chap and he died you mean to say that he i mean to say nothing there was no inquest the poor old man kept his bed for a week and the cause of death was called bronchitis but there are people i know who have their own idea about the general's death and a very ugly idea it is your friends have a penchant for ugly ideas falconer answered bothwell coolly he did not believe a word of the subaltern's story and yet the thought of it troubled him as he sat alone in his corner of the smoking carriage trying to solace himself with a pipe trying to think only of the girl he loved and of his brightening prospects that mention of a lover how much or how little did it mean could it be true that general harborough had knocked a man down in his own house such an act on the part of the most chivalrous of men must have been the result of an extraordinary provocation only a deliberate insult to a woman could excuse such an outrage against the laws of hospitality he remembered that lady valeria had talked of borrowing money from sir george varney and what could she expect but insult if she placed herself under obligation to a notorious roue he had warned her of the folly of such a course he had urged her to confide in her husband and now that good and loyal friend and protector was gone and this last act of his wife's had left her to face the world with a damaged reputation he told himself that there must be some grain of truth in the subaltern's story some fire behind this smoke the scandal too nearly touched actual facts to be altogether false god help her if her good name is at the mercy of such a scoundrel as varney thought bothwell he left penmorval in a dog-cart next morning carrying his portmanteau and a box of books at the back he was to have the use of the dog-cart and glencoe while he stayed at trevena so that he should not feel himself altogether banished he could ride over to penmorval occasionally you must not come too often mind said dora when she was bidding him good-bye indeed on reflection i think you had better only come when you are invited you may have no discretion otherwise 
it will not do for you to be really living here and only pretending to live at trevena it is unkind of you to suggest that a man must be an utter imbecile because he is in love dora remonstrated bothwell of course i understand that i am sent away as a sacrifice to the proprieties i am banished in order that mrs grundy may be satisfied that same mrs grundy who was willing to suspect me of murder on the very smallest provocation no my dear dora i am not going to be troublesome i will only come when i have your permission i suppose i may come next sunday oh bothwell this is wednesday sunday is very near it will seem ages off to me yes i shall certainly come on sunday even servants are allowed to go and see their friends on the sabbath is your cousin less than a hireling that he should be denied i shall ride over in time for breakfast on sunday morning you'll have to get up at six o'clock what of that i have had to get up at four and even at half-past three for cup hunting he arrived at trevena early in the afternoon settled himself comfortably in his cottage lodgings and arranged his books in a corner of the neat parlour with its superabundant crochet work and crockery which ornamentation he artfully persuaded his landlady to put away in a cupboard during his residence men are so clumsy he pleaded they always spoil things goody confessed that the male sex was inherently awkward and had an innate incapacity to appreciate crochet antimacassars she sighed as she denuded her best parlour of its beauties the place do look so bare she said bothwell gave up his afternoon to a long interview with the builder who was a smart young man and as honest as he was smart the old cottage was thoroughly overhauled and inspected with a view to the carrying out of those extensions and improvements which bothwell had planned for himself and for which he had made drawings that were very creditable to an amateur architect his experience as an engineer stood him in good stead he modified his plans somewhat on the advice of the smart young builder but the alterations were to be carried out very much upon his own original lines the builders modifications were chiefly in detail and then they had to fight out the question of time the builder asked for six months bothwell would only grant four finally time and costs were settled everything was agreed upon bothwell having given up his original idea of being his own builder and buying his own materials and the contract was to be taken to camelford next day to be put into legal form for four hundred and fifty pounds the old cottage was to be transformed into a comfortable house the two little parlours and the kitchen were to be made into three little studies or bookrooms communicating with each other these were for bothwell and his pupils to work in a new drawing-room dining-room and kitchen were to be built and over these three good bedrooms i shall add a billiard-room with a large nursery over it later on when i am beginning to make my fortune thought bothwell i know we shall want a billiard-room and i hope we shall want a nursery the builder had gone home to his young wife and baby in a cheerful red-brick cottage of his own construction and bothwell was pacing the old neglected garden alone in the autumn sunset when he looked up suddenly and saw a dark figure standing in the narrow path between him and the rosy western sky it was the tall slender figure of a woman robed in black and thickly veiled that black figure seemed to shut out all the warmth and beauty of the glowing west bothwell's heart 
grew cold within him at sight of it he had not a moment's doubt or hesitation though the woman's face was hardly visible under the thick crape veil valeria he exclaimed yes it is valeria how in the name of all that's reasonable did you come here a pair of post horses brought me that was easy enough when i knew where to find you i heard at bodmin road station that you were here you had been seen to drive by and you told the station master where you were going End of chapter 8